Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, this evening to Amos chapter 2. Title of the sermon, A Wayward Nation. Last time we were together in Amos, we walked through the transgressions of the countries round about Israel that formed the foundation of God's declarations of judgment against them. The reasons why God would roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. And in this, we find uh, God reminding Israel that His anger does not rest upon them alone, indeed, uh, that His anger uh, is, is also felt in the nations that are round about for the ways in which they have transgressed the Lord and brought the cup of His wrath to an overflowing account. But also that where God would devote but a few verses, a few lines to the transgressions of these other nations, where He would devote but a few lines to the transgressions of Syria, but a few lines to the transgressions of Philistia or Edom or even Jerusalem and Judah, we find that he will devote entire chapters to the transgressions of Israel against him. And today we begin those chapters expressing the transgressions and consequences of the nation. However, I'd like to do something else before we get directly into the text tonight. First thing I want to do is take a moment to talk through the nature of interpreting Old Testament scriptures. And we do this in various ways uh, over various times. Uh, Today's thought process as it relates to this is going to be very simple as we think through interpreting particularly prophecies of blessing and of judgment. When we read the scriptures, we understand without controversy that the scriptures are for us. They are for our learning. They are for our understanding. They are for our edification. And then we find that there are a subset of Old Testament scriptures that are not only for us, but they are also to us, meaning that God's intent in delivering that message was either both for the people of that day and for us today, or even in some cases, as we find in the Old Testament, God delivered a message which was only for us today, only for the church today, though delivered to the people of that day, but really not for the people of that day at all. So in Romans chapter 14, excuse me, 15 verse 4, the Bible says this, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And it is important for us when we step into Old Testament scriptures uh, to take the time to understand what the scriptures are saying from a historical perspective or a narrative perspective or a prophetic perspective, but then also to understand our relationship of the text, uh, our relationship to the text. And this is important because what we often find, and, and it perhaps becomes even more relevant in times where people are distressed or concerned or whatever the case may be, we do find that there are are oftentimes uh, scriptures that people will go to, they'll invoke as, as, as a promise or a blessing upon their own lives where, yes, that scripture is written for us that we might learn something from it, but that promise isn't actually written to us, and it can become confusing. It can muddy the waters of our understanding. Uh, but we do find here that the things that were written aforetime were written, in fact, for our learning. And Paul also says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, uh, excuse me, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So Paul tells us in these two passages that the things that were written in the past exist for our edification, for our learning, and unto our hope. The word hope in the Bible does not talk about a fearful longing for something that may or may not come to pass. There are a lot of things I hope for the future. And when we, in our modern American English, use that word hope, it's talking about something that may or may not happen. It's talking about a, a fearful longing or a desire, but, but we don't necessarily rest everything on that desire because it, it may not come to pass. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. When we talk about the idea of our blessed hope, it is not our blessed fearful longing that something may or may not come to pass. It is a joyful and earnest expectation. It is the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. So that the difference is biblical hope is 
uh, well, well, secular hope, put it that way. Secular hope is when you say, someday I hope to go to the Caribbean or Hawaii or Israel or wherever it might be. Someday I hope to go to that place. Biblical hope is when I've got the ticket purchased and the bags are packed and I'm simply waiting for the day. Everything is already established. Everything is already arranged. Everything is already in place. I'm just waiting for the day. A joyful and an earnest expectation of good. So that is the idea here of our hope. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so within the context of what I'm expressing this evening, we would say that all scripture is for us. So then, as I have laid out this idea this evening, the first category of Old Testament scriptures are those that are written to Israel, related to their covenants or their promises, but written for our learning. And what we find oftentimes in, in, in both narrative and prophecy is that there were things that were told to Israel. There were promises given to Israel. And we cannot necessarily take a one-to-one uh, um, uh, analog of that promise and say, well, God promised it to his people in that day, therefore it is my promise today as well. Some of those we can, some of those we can't. But there's this category where there are things that are written to Israel But simultaneously, we certainly understand that they are written for the church's learning, for our benefit. The second category is those things that were written to Israel and the church, to all of God's people, and certainly for the church's learning as well. We know that there are many scriptures that are written to the people of that day. They were written for the benefit of the people of that day, but they also apply to us as well. Paul gives an example of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes this, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all did eat the same spiritual meat and all did drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ." But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day there, uh, excuse me, one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So in the day that Israel came out of Egypt, they shared together in the blessing of God's deliverance. But some of them fell a lusting for the things of the world, for the desires of going back to Egypt. These events truly happened. They had direct consequence on their day. They had direct consequence upon their posterity. As we look at the nation of Israel, as it has developed over the thousands of years, we see the direct consequences of what happened in the Exodus touching the lives of generations that were to come. Many of those direct consequences were conditioned upon a covenant that the nation entered into at the Mount of Sinai, a covenant which you and I as believers are not a part of. We have never been a part of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was given to a particular nation for a particular time. And that covenant was fulfilled in Christ. And we have stepped into this thing which we call the New Covenant. And yet, Paul goes on to say in verse 6 that these things do exist for us as well as for them. To us as well as to them. They exist as an example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, that we should not tempt Christ as they tempted God. And when they tempted God, they were destroyed of serpents in the wilderness. We would not expect the same fate ourselves. If you go about to tempt God, you should not expect that a bunch of little brazen, uh, little fiery serpents are going to come and bite you and you're going to die. That part was to Israel, not to us. That was their punishment, not our punishment, but it exists 
for us. It exists as, a, as an example to us that in the same way that they suffered direct consequences for their tempting of God, so too God's people in this day also do suffer direct consequences for tempting God as well. So that Paul tells us in verse 11 that these things happen to them as an example to us upon whom the ends of the world are come. The church age initiated what we understand to be the last days. Paul would acknowledge throughout the New Testament that we are in the last days and we have been so since the time of Paul, since the time the New Testament was written. And for the past 2,000 years, we have been in those last days and those things were recorded, yes, for history. Those things were recorded, yes, they happened. Those things were recorded to express Israel's relationship to their covenant and to their God, but also recorded specifically that we might learn how to properly relate ourselves to Christ so that there are things written to Israel that we can learn from. There are things that are written to Israel that God also intended the church to directly understand as it relates to themselves, to Israel and the church, and of course, for our learning. And then there is this interesting final category. Things written to the church and for the church, though they were written in the Old Testament, though they were written well before the church would exist, yet they existed specifically for those upon whom the ends of the world would come. The Bible tells us that there are certain Old Testament passages of Scripture which were recorded for us alone. They were not there for the benefit or the applicability of the people of their day. And that the only relevance of those Scriptures to life would be for those who lived in the times after their fulfillment. Peter speaks to this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Jumping into context, Peter is speaking of salvation by grace through faith. And in verse 10, he says this, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. This is interesting. Peter tells us here that the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit of God, that would come upon these prophets and inspire them thus to write these scriptures, that the prophets would write down these prophecies that the Spirit of Christ inspired them to write. And once they wrote down these prophecies, they would pray and they'd say, God, what is this? What am I writing? What does this mean? What is this, this, this suffering and this glory that should follow? And as they inquired about this, God said, don't worry about it. It's not for you. You're writing unto a different set of people. You're writing to a people that shall come. In Daniel, recall, Daniel writes the prophecies and, and, and the angel says, Seal up the book in the vision till the time of the end. The people that were reading those things in Daniel's day, in the days of the Maccabees, they read them and they, 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 they interpreted them through the lenses that they could understand, but they did not understand them. They could not understand them. They weren't for them. They were for us, upon whom the ends of the world have come. We know that the New Testament teachings of the confusion of Jesus' disciples and of the Pharisees, even in Jesus' day, even as he was there, the, his own followers, his disciples, the Pharisees, they did not fully understand. Recall right before Jesus ascended into heaven, you remember what his disciples asked him? Wilt thou now restore the kingdom? All right, they'd been waiting for the kingdom the whole time. Okay, now Jesus dies and he raises from the dead. Now is the time, Jesus, to restore the kingdom? And he says, that's in my Father's hands. No man knows the time nor the hour. Save the Father. Paul calls this in the New Testament a mystery. A mystery in the Bible was something that God saw fit not to enlighten Old Testament readers unto. Not to reveal in his teachings. The content was there, but it would not make sense until the Holy Spirit of God would minister it to the hearts of God's people through the lens of grace. And Peter tells us that God told those prophets, don't worry about it. 
Write down what I've told you to write, but don't worry about what it means because it's not for you. It's for another generation, specifically for our generation. As Jesus would tell his disciples, other generations, God saw fit not to tell, tell them everything, but Jesus says to you, I make known all things. And the spirit of God is that source. So that whenever we're interpreting the Old Testament, we have to consider exactly what it is that we can and should glean from any given passage. All of it is for us. All of it has benefit for us. All of it gives us something that we can take away, right? We spent this morning in Genesis chapter 11 looking through a genealogy, and yet we were still able to take away some things that can benefit us as we think through a legacy of faith, as we think through uh, the, the, the timetable of events. Those things can benefit us, but we're not going to necessarily carry away with it an understanding of the gospel or anything of the sort. It is also there as a means by which to relate ourselves to the history of the day and to relate uh, God's people to their own history, the, the, the nation of Israel at the least. So we see those things, things written to Israel, but for us. Then we see those things that are written both to Israel and to the church as relevant to us today as it was to them then. It's for all of God's people in every generation and of course for our learning. And then those things that are written only to the church, really. And uh, the, the people of Israel, God's people prior to Pentecost, God's people prior to the Spirit of God and dwelling the hearts of men and teaching men all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded us. For them, it was there, it existed, it was present, but they did not have the insight to understand it, only we do, through the Spirit of God. Regardless, and, and this is why none of this is a waste of our time, is all for us. That's why it's always worth it studying the scriptures, studying the prophecies. Maybe they don't all apply to us, but they are all for us nevertheless. So I wanted to lay that out this evening so that as we continue through the text, you might find some, we, we will run across as we have done in the past in Ezekiel and Daniel and many of the Old Testament prophecies that I've spoken of. We'll run into some various elements of prophecy that might not necessarily be relevant to us Directly, promises that might not be relevant to us directly, and yet we draw from them principles nevertheless, and we want to be careful that we parse those things properly, lest we get into a place where we have expectations of God's promises upon us that are not realistic to our own circumstances. So we transition then in our text, as I mentioned in Amos chapter 2, to God's focus upon Israel herself. After spending the previous many verses focused upon the transgressions of the nations round about them, we read this beginning in Amos 2, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. In the context of what we have just talked about, the passage falls comfortably into what I'd call category two. These things are written. Israel was doing them in the day. God was angry at them in this day for the things that they have done. But what we will find as well is that the things that God is describing that were happening in the nation of Israel are things that happen uh, commonly among a certain subset of humanity. And when this, these things happen commonly among this subset of humanity, when a certain people group, a certain culture, a certain society, whichever one it may be, uh, entertain these same actions, fall into these same sins, it ends up in the same place for us as it would for them in their day. And let me show you why I say this. We'll consider that as we continue through the text. God uses the same formula with Israel that he did with the other nations, right? This three and four formula for three transgressions and for four. As I've mentioned, there's a couple of different possibilities as to what this means. I believe it's probably an addition sort of an idea for three and for four, three plus four being seven, thus uh, indicating that the cup of God's wrath has filled to its full that number seven being the number of completion or perfection in the scriptures uh, metaphorically. 
And the transgression that God lists in verse 6 is that they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. There are two categories of people mentioned here. The first are the righteous and the second are the poor. We might broaden that idea of the poor specifically to the vulnerable. The righteous and the vulnerable. And the offense is that for the sake of their own wealth, for the sake of their own luxury, for the sake of their, their own uh, um, uh, happiness, the people of the nation had victimized two specific people groups. Those that prioritized righteousness, those that would be honest and have integrity, and then those who were needy and vulnerable in society. And the primary essence of this victimization was that they were lending to the poor, they were lending to the needy, and then they would charge them interest, but they would charge such interest as it would keep the poor never able to actually pay off their debt. It was driving them into a cycle of debt whereby they were thus placed in a, a position of absolute subservience because they could not ever get out of that cycle until the wealthy were able to milk every last drop of potential worth out of their countrymen so that they were becoming wealthy at the expense of the poor. And they were using the poor to continue to gain their wealth while locking the poor in a situation that, that they simply could not get out of. And the Bible presents the casting off of the righteous and oppression of the poor as effectively the epitome of religious apostasy. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 16, God writes, He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. A society which increases the wellness of the rich at the expense of the poor is a broken Society. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But we see perhaps the clearest example of religious apostasy connected to the poor and the vulnerable in James chapter 1, verse 7. Excuse me, verse 27. James writes, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The exact same categories that we find in Amos chapter 2. The idea that they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Those two categories, the righteous and the vulnerable. James says pure religion is reflected in two ways. Now, religion is not the essence of what we have in Christ. What we have is relationship. We are not in a religion. We are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The church is not a religious-based system. The church is a relationship-based system where we come to Jesus Christ recognizing ourselves as sinners separated from a holy God, that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He has paid that debt. He's risen in victory over sin and death and hell. And we place our faith in the finished work of Christ and so enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who mediates before the Father that is what we have. However, religion is, is, is a part of the human exercise of said relationship. If you can think of it this way, relationship is what we aim for and religion is the, set, the subset of things that we do as a means by which to facilitate that relationship. So I have a relationship with my wife and there are things that I do to facilitate that relationship. These are not the essence of the relationship itself. These are, this is a framework that is put in place as a means by which to, to further or to establish or to keep that relationship uh, working properly. So my wife and I will spend time together talking, asking each other how our day, how our week has gone, going through the problems, going through the things that, that came up that we need to talk to each other about. The reason why we do that on a regular basis, we do it religiously. We don't do it just for the sake of doing it. We do it as a means by which to keep our relationship in check. We'll go on a date night and we'll spend a little bit of time apart from the kids. We will, um, I'll, I'll bring her flowers every once in a while as a means by which to, to, to 
remind her that I'm thinking of her, that she is on my mind even when she is not with me in person. And none of these things in and of themselves are themselves the relationship. These are various things that I will do religiously as a means by which to direct me into that relationship, to keep me connected to that relationship, and to advocate in my heart for the need to keep that relationship strong. And that's religion. They are outward acts. They are outward works. They are regular things that we do as a means by which to direct our hearts and to keep it rooted in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so the things that we do religiously, we might go to church religiously. We do not go to church for the sake of religion. We go to church religiously as a means by which to direct our hearts into continued relationship. You might read your Bible every morning, reading your Bible religiously. You don't read your Bible for the sake of reading your Bible. It is not a religious practice in that sense, but it is a means by which it's, a, it's the framework by which you are directed to keep your relationship with Christ alive and vibrant. Same with prayer, same with scripture memory. And in this case, James says two things truly reflect the essence of pure religion. The first is to help the most vulnerable in our society, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, to meet the needs of those who are struggling to meet their own. And second, to keep himself unspotted from the world, to live a life that is separated from the wickedness of the world. Righteousness, to help the poor and to be righteous. Poor and the righteous, these same two categories that we find in Amos 2, we also find as a reflection of pure religion in James chapter 1. The nation of Israel in their day had abandoned both of these principles, the principles of pure religion. And the Bible says that they had done so for the sake of money. And this is not a unique concept, either biblically nor historically. Paul warned in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul is writing about those who were in the faith, who are in the faith, who had followed the faith of Jesus Christ. And then something happened. They developed a love of money. Notice Paul is not saying here, he does not say that money itself is the root of all evil. Money itself is not the root of all evil. Money does not carry with it an intrinsic moral quality any more than a tree or a boat or a pencil carries with it intrinsic moral quality. But as any object or principle in life, it invariably, money invariably takes on moral qualities depending upon how I respond to it or what I choose to do with it. What that object compels in my heart. So that while money itself is not a problem directly, when money and the things which can be bought with money become an object of desire, a object of focused desire in my heart, we call that covetousness, this love of money invariably produces in me a kind of pragmatism that compels me to be willing to either put up with or even commit myself to evil as a means by which to gain more of the same. And the evils of Israel's day, for the sake of money, the love of money drove them to two particular evils. They sold the righteous... It's the first one that's said here. They abandoned the principles of obedience to the word of God in deference to a love for luxury and material gain. They yielded those who were speaking the truths of righteousness and they silenced them and they abandoned them and the principles that they espoused as a means by which to stay wealthy. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, be focused thy whole body 
shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, if the thing that you're looking at is wicked, if your desires are toward wicked things, that's the idea there, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If darkness is coming into the eye, then darkness is what is informing the body. The idea here is how the body processes light. When my eyes are, are receiving light, right? What is happening? The reason why I can see anything in this room is because light is bouncing off of that thing and then it is, it is hitting my eye. And as the, the light bouncing off of the things in this room hits my eye, I am able, my body is able to orient itself properly to the things that are in this room. If we were to, flat, to turn all the lights off and cover all of the windows so that it was dark in here, my eyes are still working But if we can say it this way, the only thing touching my eyes is darkness. Therefore, my whole body is filled with darkness. There's no other part of my body that is able to orient itself rightly to the things that are in this room if my eyes are not receiving light. And thus, I become disoriented. So that no matter how well I understand the room that is around me, I'm going to be tripping, I'm going to be falling, I'm going to be running into things if I do not have light because my body is filled with darkness. It is unable to orient itself self properly to, to, to the truth of the room if I do not have light to illuminate the truths that are around me. That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 6. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Christian, there are a number of things in this world which are contending for your loyalty. One of them is Christ. Now, he deserves your loyalty. He has every right to your loyalty, both by, 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 by right through creation and by right through redemption. He has the right to that loyalty. He is your creator. He is your savior. Another, however, are the treasures upon this earth what Jesus calls here mammon. That treasure is not bound by the principles of Christ and of his kingdom. They are bound by the principles of the kingdoms of this world and of the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. Now, again, that doesn't mean that the treasures of this world are in themselves evil, but the compulsion in the human heart to prioritize earthly treasures directs our heart in only one direction, Christian. The treasures of this world are subject to the rules of this world, subject to the kingdoms of this world, and the rules of this world are contrary to the rules of Christ. To this end, and listen carefully, the heart that prioritizes, not the heart that has the treasures of this world, but the heart that prioritizes the treasures of this world, the treasures that are upon the earth, is a heart that by nature is placing something above Christ because you cannot both prioritize the treasures of this world and prioritize Christ. It's an idolatrous heart. And to this, the Christian says, well, pastor, I, I, I can have both, right? I can have both. I can seek to lay up treasure upon earth and heaven. It's indicative of the time in history in which we find ourselves. I can prioritize both. But that's really not what Jesus said. Jesus said you can serve only one master, not two. Now again, does that mean you can't pri- that, that you can't seek to earn money? That's not what this is saying. Does that mean that you can't uh, put time and effort into earning money into, and, and into working for the things of this earth? That's not what this is saying. The question is, who are you serving? Say, Pastor, in a land of plenty, in a land of wealth, in a context where I have money and I earn money and I buy things, many things beyond just that which is necessary, how can I know whether I am serving God or serving things? And Jesus told us how we can know. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so the question to answer as to whether or not you serve money or money serves you, you serve things or things serve you, the question there is answered in this way. Where's your heart? Is it with the kingdom of God or is it with the things of this earth? And the examples of this are not hard to find. 
sacrificing time with family, investment in your children for the sake of earning and securing a more comfortable, lavish lifestyle, you might want to check your heart, Christian. Choosing a career path which puts you in conflict with the capacity to assemble with God's people, you might want to check your priorities. Keeping your mouth shut on matters of righteousness so as to not lose the favor of people who employ you or use your products or services or sit in the chairs at church, we might want to check our hearts. All of these are ways that we can end up serving the things of this world rather than these, the things of this world serving us. All of these are ways that we can be inverted, imbalanced in our lives where we can start to allow mammon, allow the priorities of the world, allow the messaging of the world, allow the, 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 the treasures of this world to dictate the manner in which we live our lives rather than to dictate through Christ how we use those things. And when mammon is dictating our decisions, one thing we know, Christian, is that Christ is not also dictating them. It doesn't work that way. You can't serve both at the same time, Jesus said in Matthew 6. You're serving one or you're serving the other. We hasten on. So the first oppression in Israel's day was the oppression of the righteous. They sold the righteous for silver. The second oppression was of that of the poor. One of the truly distinguishing features of the Judeo-Christian ethic among the world's religious and secular philosophies is that the Judeo-Christian ethic has a deep-rooted determination to support the vulnerable and the needy in society. As a matter of fact, many of the more modern ideas surrounding the humanistic uh, philosophy find that as one of the greatest weaknesses of Christianity, is that we are uh, uniquely sensitive to the needs of the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable in our society. And this does not well comport to a humanistic worldview because a humanistic worldview is built upon uh, Darwinian evolutionistic ideas that say survival of the fittest. Therefore, in a survival of the fittest idea, the weak are not there to be protected. They're, they're holding us back, right? They are, they are stunting the capacity of humanity to take the next steps. So we've got to get rid of the weak. We've got to get rid of the vulnerable. We've got to get rid of the poor. Whereas the Judeo-Christian ethic says, no, these are the ones that we need to care for, that we need to help, that we need to support, that we need to spend more time, put more effort into. Amos 2 speaks of the poor being sold for a pair of shoes. Because the poor had no means by which to advocate for themselves, they became a very easy target for men to prey upon, to use, to abuse, to take advantage of for personal gain. Now, in this case, we don't know exactly what it means that they were sold for silver and for a pair of shoes. Perhaps it means that they were simply oppressed, that they betrayed the cause of the poor and of the righteous, that they refused to help them in their time of need. Perhaps it speaks more literally. Remember last time we were together and we talked about God's condemnation of various empires. Specifically, he rebuked Syria, Philistia, and Phoenicia for the sin of selling the captivity to Edom. Perhaps it was that Israel, for the sake of their own economic prosperity, would actually indenture these poor people who had gotten themselves into debt. And you'll see why in a little bit. Um, we do seem to see a connection in the text to debt, to the poor being in debt, to the, these vulnerable being in debt. And perhaps it was that there came a point where, where these wealthy would have fleeced the poor of everything that they had, and the only thing they had left were their lives, and so they actually took their lives and sold them into slavery. Perhaps it was that it was actually Israel that was selling them to Phoenicia and to Syria and to um, the Philistia, and then they were then selling them to Edom. Either way, however, such treatment of the poor, a resting of judgment from the poor solely because they had no power to advocate for themselves has always been something that has been abominable to God. More passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that are both to Israel and to the church. We read in Exodus chapter 23, verses 6 and 7, Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. Keep thee far from a false matter. 
and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. God says, don't, because the poor do not have the means by which to advocate for themselves, do not take advantage of that to take away from them just judgment. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. Whether a person is poor or whether a person is rich, they should all face the same legal code. They should all face the same justice system. You should not favor the poor because they're poor. You should should not favor the rich because they're rich. They should all receive the same just judgment. And again, Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates and in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. This principle is well carried over into the New Testament. Say, well, pastor, how do we know? I mean, those things were written in the law. We already said that the Mosaic law is not a covenant under which we're bound. That's right. We're not bound to the same consequences and blessings that God gave as he gave those things. How do you know then, pastor, that that these particular principles that we see in, in all of these law passages apply just as much to us today? Well, because we see them carried over into the New Testament. We already talked about James chapter 1, verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, to keep himself unspotted from the world. But what do we read in Ephesians 4.28? Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Why? As we put off the old man and put on the new, what is it that we are compelled to do as we put on the new man? We're compelled no longer to steal as one would do who, has, who is living in the old man, but rather he labors with his hand unto what end? That he may have to give. To give to those in need. That's why we labor. When the treasure upon this earth serves us as we serve the kingdom of God, the natural result is going to be this. First, we're going to hold the things of this world loosely. And second, we are going to maintain both a heart and an open hand to those who are in need. So then, when you ask the question, do I serve money or does money serve me? These are two ways that you can find that out. These are two things that you want to watch for in your life to flag if you start to see a shift in your priorities. First, how tightly are you holding the things of this world? I was once teaching a class, um, and uh, it was a class of uh, businessmen And uh, there were numerous millionaires among the group of men that I was teaching. And uh, as I was teaching this class, uh, we we were talking about uh, about this idea of of materialism and and of holding the world loosely. And one of the men raised their hand and and, and he said, Pastor, he said, how do I know if I... If, if, if I am being covetous, how do I know if my desire to earn money is an, an imbalanced desire? And I, I had never, I, I, don't, I don't earn a lot of money. So I said, you know, I, 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 I cannot relate to your circumstances. Could one of the other very, very wealthy men in this group uh, give him an answer to this question? And the man that gave the answer said this. He said, if you ever get to the point where you're not willing to lose anything that you have materially, then you need to start checking your heart. If you ever get to the point where you're not willing to give away something that you have materially, you need to start checking your heart. Because at that point, it's a point where money may start to have you rather than you having money. Where money might, you might start, you, you might start serving treasure rather than the treasure serving you. And of course, the other thing here, an open hand. When at, which po- when at the point that you say, I will not give, I cannot give, I need that, it's for me, and you lose that open hand of generosity toward others, you need to start checking your heart. Because the scriptures testify all through the law, all through the gospels, all through the epistles of the importance of generosity. 
that those who have give to those who are needing in their day. And then those who are needing when they are coming out of that time of need, then they begin to invest in the others that have need. And in doing so, we love and support one another. Much to the contrary, in Amos's day, verse 7 tells us that the nation panted after the dust of the earth on the heads of the poor. That's an interesting statement. There's a lot of debate as to what that statement means, that they pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. We do know that a person would put dust upon their heads when they were in mourning. That was an Old Testament custom, a Semitic uh, custom to do that. And Amos tells them that these people, the nation of Israel, they panted after. The idea they would be longing after a sign of mourning on the poor. Again, this statement is a bit ambiguous, but based upon what history tells us of the character of those who would pursue wealth at any cost, it could very well mean that the wealthy in society were intentionally seeking to keep the poor impoverished. Because in doing so, they could continue to take advantage of them. This uh, conjures back images of the old robber barons, right? The men who in the, in the time of the Industrial Revolution would have a factory and they would buy up all the land around that factory and they would build homes and create markets on their land in the factories. And then they would compel people to come and work for them and the amount of wages that that baron would pay to the people would be very carefully balanced with how much he charged for goods and services, for rent, for the place where they lived, for the amount that it would cost for goods and services in the store. So that by the end of the month, there was a very, uh, there was a, a, a situation where the man earned just enough to pay the rent that he was paying to the boss man and the food that he bought in the boss man's stores. And so it kept him locked into his position He was never able to save any money. This robber baron being very content to keep the people poor as a means by which to keep his control over them. And this was something that we see in history. And this has been done in numerous ways. It's still being done today. People find their ways through the regulations in order to do this exact same thing. And so we see this happen time and time again in history among those who pursue wealth at the expense of people. The powerful in society, keeping the the weak weak, keeping the poor poor, enacting policies and pursuing so-called solutions that never work, and that by design, because then they can keep the poor and the vulnerable poor and vulnerable, because that keeps them in power. And what this created in Israel, as it does in every nation, And in every heart that openly pursues such covetousness and such lust is a downward spiral from simply covetousness into other profanity that does not simply end at uh, at oppression. Excuse me. Notice what verse 7 continues to say here in Amos chapter 2. That pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid and profane my holy name. When a nation gets rich and fat and bored, well, as the old adage goes, idle hands are the devil's playthings. It's actually a pretty good idiom. A people sell their integrity. They yield the distinctions of righteousness, of morality, of religion, Sacrifice them all on the altar of pragmatic gain for the treasures of this earth. And it is then but a small leap into any other manner of profanity. And in this case, as is the case, sexual perversion. The sexual perversion of our society today, Christian, did not pop out of nowhere. It is a result of a society that is rich and bored and lazy and a society that thus has become proud and selfish and entitled. And on the authority of the word of God, when a nation becomes rich 
and bored and lazy. It becomes proud, selfish, and entitled. And when a nation becomes rich, bored, lazy, proud, selfish, and entitled, what they do is they cast off the design of God and they throw themselves headlong into sexual impurity. It happened in Amos's day. But, that, but Amos's day is actually not the prototype for this. The prototype for this is a city called Sodom. The great city of the plains that was destroyed in Genesis chapter 19 due to the depth of the sexual perversion which had overcome its people. But sexual perversion was not where it began. Did you know that? In Ezekiel 16, God lists the sins of Sodom. And in verse 49, he says this, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, as he's writing to Israel. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Interesting. So Sodom, which we know was a city that was destroyed for the depth of the sexual perversions which it was, it was engulfed in. It didn't start with being engulfed in sexual perversion. It began with the city becoming wealthy and proud. And because they were proud and wealthy, they had fullness of bread and idleness of hands. They had too much time on their hands. This compelled them to a certain way of thinking. It drew their heart, because they were bored, into sexual perversion. It also drew their heart, as you, say, as you see here, into a greed whereby they refused to strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. So it began with these things. It began with pride. It began with wealth. It began with idleness. This compelled them to ignore the poor, to reject the righteous, if you will, it compelled them to sell the righteous for silver and poor for a pair of shoes. And then it continued in Sodom's day, as we see also in Amos's day, into sexual perversion. Whereas Amos says here, a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane God's holy name. And also into a deep callousness to anyone but themselves. And this is well described in verse 8. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. The picture here is of men and women who had plenty, more than what they needed. They had fullness of bread, they had idleness, they had everything. But then what they would do by taking down the, and laying themselves down on clothes laid to pledge, and drinking wine of the condemned, the idea there is that they would take the clothes that they took off the backs of the poor because the poor could not afford to pay them the interest on their loans and such. And so they would say, give us literally the clothes off your back. And they would take those clothes, even though they didn't need those clothes, and they would lay them down and they would lay down upon them in front of the altars to their false gods. And then they would get up and they would, they, they would uh, um, praise and they would, they would worship their false gods and they would do so drinking the wine that they took from the houses of the poor. This was the idea here, that they would not just fleece the poor, but then they would flaunt that fleecing and live out of the abundance of the, 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 the poverty and, the, uh, and the, the suffering of the vulnerability in their mirth and in their pleasure. And this callous, pragmatic, wicked, proud, selfish, and perverse lifestyle, for this, the judgment of God was falling upon them. Okay, so I know we've covered a lot of ground today, and the application has kind of been scattered throughout. But let's kind of summarize what we've learned here this evening from Amos 2. The transgressions which we find in these verses, unlike some of the ones committed by the other nations, are as much a danger for us today as they were for Israel back then. This is as much to us as it was to them in their day. God rebukes the nation for abandoning the first principles of religious devotion through their covetousness. 
a love of money which compelled them to cast off their regard for God's word, for intrinsic morality, for righteousness, and a love of money which compelled them to have no regard for human dignity, to not strengthen the hand of the needy and the poor, and to cast off the vulnerable of their society in order that they might pursue their own luxury and comfort. This heart of selfish pride did not simply lead to extortion and greed and abuse of society's vulnerable, but it also consumed their heart and thus led them into all other manner, manners of pragmatism, including personal sexual perversion, which crippled the capacity of righteousness in society. And of this, I have two things to think about with you this evening. First, we recognize the characteristics of Israel in that day are very well mirrored in the character of our own society today. We live in a land that lies to the poorest among us to increase wealth of the wealthy and to keep the poor impoverished. We have a welfare state that is explicitly designed to keep the poor dependent upon the generosities of the government rather than putting them on a road to recovery. We have a society which has sold out all principles of ethical treatment and that in the name of ethical treatment. A society which regularly profits off of the suffering of the vulnerable among us taking vulnerable women and turning them into a full-time industry through abortion, taking vulnerable children and pumping them full of expensive medications to alter their minds, their bodies, and their behaviors, taking the most confused, the most vulnerable among us and exploiting them for personal gain. It touches all of us. These slabs of glass and metal that we have in our pockets would be a whole lot more expensive if they weren't being made by slave wages in China, right? Now, we we couldn't get away with that in the United States because we have regulations, so we just invite China into the World Trade Organization, and then we let them do our slave labor for us so that we can have a cheaper phone, cheaper goods. It's the same thing. It's a broken society, a society which has relegated all principles of righteousness to the fringe, spoken only by select politicians and spiritual leaders, and only then in order to fleece the flock for their time or money, a society which exploits every crisis to take agency from the powerless and protection from the vulnerable, a society which is rich and proud and idle. And on the authority of God's word, such a society is ripe for judgment. It was ripe for judgment in Sodom's day. It was ripe for judgment in Amos' day. And surely we must be ripe for judgment in our day as well. And the state of this nation comes both with warning and a comfort for we who look at the state of things. And we find, we, we, we look at that with horror and with sorrow and with mourning in and of ourselves. Proverbs 22, verses 22 and 23 says, Rob not the poor because he is poor. Neither oppress the afflicted in the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. The comfort of these verses is that where our society and institutions fail to plead the cause of the poor and the vulnerable, we can rest assured the Lord does plead their cause. The Lord meets out consequences upon the souls and the hearts of those who are exploitative and hard-hearted. And thus, this comes with a natural warning, does it not, as well? And the warning is that we not fall into the trap of becoming like them, of, of, of being among those in society that rob the poor and oppress the vulnerable. Now, there's only so much we can do. As I said, uh, our society is very much so built on these sorts of things, on these sorts of arrangements. And we say, well, there's nothing we can do about the fact that China is a totalitarian government and they exploit their people for gain and and then they sell that to us. And maybe there's not a whole lot we can do about that. But God forbid that we would allow that then to form a pragmatism in our hearts that would compel us to do the same. 
Instead, may we as God's people, may we as a church, may we among the perversion of the world that is around us plead the cause, live in that pure and undefiled religion whereby we visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, whereby we keep ourselves unspotted from the world, whereby we live out the principles in our own area of the world as we can. God will plead the cause of those that we can't help. But let us help the cause of those we can. The second point that I make this evening also gives cause for hope. The warnings of greed, pride, and selfishness rests not just upon societies, but upon individuals as well. We walk through various New Testament passages calling us into this exercise of pure religion, caring for the vulnerable, and living lives of separated holiness calling us to lay up that treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal, knowing that where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And if you find yourself having placed your affections on the treasures of this life in some way, shape, or form, having fallen into the allures of a philosophy of self which scorns separated living or generous living, well, this is our opportunity, right? to realign our priorities with Christ's priorities, to submit ourselves into his way. And we call ourselves unto this, certainly for our own sakes, knowing that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, but also for the sake of our society as well. I appeal to the fact of Sodom to remind us of God's judgment and what brought Sodom to the condition it did, which was that they were bored, fat, and lazy, right? Idleness of bread, pride, full, uh, 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 excuse me, fullness of bread, pride, idleness of time. But do you remember what happened in Genesis 18 just before the two angels went into the city of Sodom? Remember there were three men the angel of the Lord and two others, those two angels that met with Abram, Abraham by that point. And they ate together and as they were leaving, the angel of the Lord said, should I tell Abraham what I do? And he told him that he was about to go into Sodom and Gomorrah and see if the wickedness that had been cried out from the earth was true and if so, that he would judge them. And Abraham said to the Lord, Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then Abraham made an appeal. He said, Lord, if there were but 50 righteous in the city, would you, would you withhold your judgment? And the angel of the Lord said, if there are 50 righteous, I will not destroy the city. For 50 righteous, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham said, Lord, what about if there were only 45 righteous in the city? And the Lord says, if there are only 45 righteous in the city, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham said again, what about 40? The Lord said, for 40, I will not destroy the city. Abraham said, 30. The Lord said, for 30, I will not destroy the city. Abraham said, what about 20? The Lord said, for 20, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham said, one more. Lord, what if there's only 10 righteous in the city? And the Lord said, you know what? If there's only 10 righteous in the city, I still will not destroy that city. Now, Abraham left off his appeal at 10. Unfortunately, God sent his angels and they only found four. But here's another Old Testament passage that I believe falls into category two, as we talked about earlier tonight. A principle that is both to the people of that day and to us today. The reason why we live out the principles of God's word in our own lives is certainly for our benefit. You live out the principles of God's word. You keep yourself unspotted from the world. You live a life of separation. You visit the fatherless and widows. You keep that open hand of generosity to the poor. You labor that you may have to give to him that has need. We rally around one another. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We help one another. We support one another. We reach out to the needs of others and we, and, and, and we, we connect with them and we help the poor. We help the vulnerable in society. We do our part. And in doing so, of course, we know that we have the Lord's favor. The Lord's favor upon us, upon our families, upon our church. But what if, 
as we resist the temptation to fall into the same covetousness that we find our nation has fallen into, to the same pride and fullness of bread and idleness of time that the nation around us has fallen into, what if the intercession of Legacy Baptist Church before the eyes of God might spare judgment upon an entire society? What if you and I, through determined obedience, might be able not only to rest in the favor of God upon those who worship and serve him ourselves, but also stand in the gap between the confused, lost, and perverse society in which we find ourselves and the righteous judgment of a holy God? And so the question is, are you a part of that righteous remnant this evening? Not that you've accepted Christ as your Savior, but that you are living out these principles of pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. Of course, are you in Christ is step one. But have you put on Christ, making no provision for the flesh to fulfill it in the lust thereof? Are your affections on the things above, not on things of the earth? And perhaps it is like in Amos' day, our righteous living will function only become, to become a target of the, uh, of the wealthy, right? Maybe by living in this righteousness that, that we are called to live unto, uh, we will only become a part of that statement that you have sold the righteous for silver. Or maybe it is that by living in this manner, like in Abraham's day, the Lord might look down and say, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And that remnant is there. Therefore, I will withhold judgment. We don't know. But one way or another, we want to be on God's side. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.